0: The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Wednesday, July twenty fifth, two thousand eighteen. From Slate, it's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The tape of Michael Cohen and Donald Trump discussing payment methods to quiet Trump's alleged—do we have to say alleged? Former mistress Karen McDougal is, according to Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani, helpful. To his client, quote, in the big scheme of things, it's powerful exculpatory evidence. As I was trying to puzzle this out, Giuliani came out with another claim. He said he's hired an expert to enhance the muffled recording. An expert, I don't know where you find such an expert, bababooey. And he says, not the expert, but Giuliani says, Trump never said pay with cash. What he really said was don't Pay with cash, and that don't shows that Trump wants to be open and honest about this payment to the National Enquirer to keep Karen McDougal's story from ever becoming public, just an above board and honest hush payment that his spokesman Hope Hicks denied ever happened. So here on Fox is what Giuliani said he heard when he heard the tape. President Trump says, "Quote, don't pay with cash." Cohen then interrupts and says, no, 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 I got it. And then you hear distinctly, if you're careful and you slow it down, check. Check. We always were told Trump was playing three-dimensional chess. Maybe he was literally playing two-dimensional chess while in a meeting with his lawyer. So yesterday what happened was Giuliani injected this word don't. And remember, this is one week after Donald Trump retroactively injected the word wouldn't. When there was a would, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. But was there a don't? Would that there were a don't? Here at the GIST, we have obtained the actual enhanced audio. Warning, not actual audio. And let us slow it down. Let us hear what they're saying. Okay, first now, we're going to hear the relevant clip from the actual unenhanced tape. Which will be... Listen. What finance? We'll have to pay. No, 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 no. no. I got... No, no, no. Okay. Now, remember, the whole deal there was paying uh, money to AMI, the parent company of the National Enquirer. We'll pay them the money, and then no one will know about McDougal. It seems like Trump was suggesting they pay with cash, but no, we have the enhanced audio. We're going to slow it down, and we could hear what Rudy Giuliani heard, and you can hear what Trump truly meant.
1: Which will be... listen. What finance?
0: We'll have to pay So No, 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 no. I don't. I have been looking into Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I've long been interested in the blockchain, but whatever you do, be sure to comply with all federal disclosure requirements including Form 3L report of contributions bundled with lobbyists slash registrants. Perhaps that doesn't apply, but you know me. Excess of caution, Johnny. I wouldn't want to go to prison like outlaw country progenitor, Johnny. No, 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 no. And then what Michael Cohen did was point out that if he castled, he could get out of check exculpatory indeed. On the show today, I spiel about, well, this is kind of new. So our interview today is with Alison Yarrow about her book, 90s Bitch. And toward the end of that interview, as you will hear, we get into a little debate. Okay, the 90s wasn't great, but you know, it was better than the 80s. And she sort of disagreed. And I said, well, I mean, I'm sure we can find some empirical data points to prove my point. And guess what? I did just that. That is the spiel. So I will dedicate the spiel to an empirical analysis of this decade in Sexism. This decade in Sexism is, of course, an outgrowth of the award-winning series This Week in Sexism, which they used to play during rain delays of Atlanta Braves games. But first, as predicate, as just interesting thesis in and of itself, here is my interview with Alison Yarrow, who wrote the book 90s Bitch. So as part of the Gist series on books based on the lyrics of the Swedish duo Iconopop, I give you 90s bitch. Media culture and the failed promise of gender equality. Alison Yarrow wrote it and hello, Alison. How are you? Hi, Mike. And this has nothing to do with Iconopop.
1: Zero. Just a reference to the...
0: But, but they are celebrating the 90s bitchdom. You're from the 70s and I'm a 90s bitch saying it proudly. And you're, I think, let's throw out a phrase, de-reclaiming it. De- reclaiming it? it.
1: Well, I'm causing us to investigate it in a different way. Don't,
0: thank God you didn't say interrogate.
1: <laughs> or you do an anti-interrogation kind of.
0: I am anti-interrogation. Yeah, okay. less of the Latin. I verbs. have said
1: interrogation before. We we understand. Yeah.
0: Okay. So f- how old are you?
1: So I was eight to eighteen in the nineties. Okay.
0: And so when you when we leave the decade, when you're eighteen, what did you think about the word bitch and friends calling each other bitch?
1: I was part of a group of young women who thought it was a word that could be reclaimed Mm -hmm. and perhaps was being reclaimed. So 90s bitch, bitch is not a celebration of the term. It was a fact that during the 1990s, the word bitch and its corollaries, derivatives were used universally to objectify and limit women's progress. And so that's what I really wanted to dig into. So Monica Lewinsky, Anita Hill, um, Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan, name a woman who was making the news in the 90s and she was limited or called one of these tropes, bitch, slut, backstabber, bad mom. Yeah. She was encouraged to catfight with other women. Yeah. It got really tropey after a while. I mean, it's, it's funny because when I were Turn to the decade, I didn't see it like that. But now you could take any woman who made the news during that time, and she fits into this treatment.
0: I got one exception. Who's that? Sandra Day O'Connor.
1: Sandra Day O'Connor. You don't think she fits into that?
0: <laughs> I don't think anyone called her a bitch. <laughs>
1: maybe not in a news article, but yeah. perhaps in another way.
0: Maybe <laughs> you think you think Scalia. I can I could maybe. Her. I could
1: dig on that for you and okay.
0: come back. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Monica Lewinsky because I think no one got played worse than Monica Lewinsky in the '90s, and she is the epitome of all the horrible calumny that was visited upon women who, in in, I think in retrospect, were pretty much kind of heroic. Was she the main person you wanted to write about here?
1: She was not the main person, but I think she was the uh, quickest one to see when I returned to the decade and started to look at the stories of famous and infamous women. So Monica Lewinsky, in a lot of ways, represents a new kind of woman uh, who was emerging in the 90s. So Mm -hmm. she was going to work. She was earning income. She was having sex outside of marriage thanks to the expansion of birth control. And she was reflected not only in the culture, but in television shows like Living Single and Sex and the City and *Allie McBeal. Um, and part of this is also because for about 100 years, the median age of marriage was about 22 to 23. But then it leapt up to 24 and then 25. By 1997, the median age of marriage was 25 years old. So women mm-hmm. were delaying marriage and they were independent in the culture. Monica Lewinsky fits into this new kind of woman. And there was a lot of Push back to that idea. You saw these dating guides like um, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and the rules, which sort of encouraged women to go back to these stereotypes, sort of get back in the kitchen. You're and a beautiful
0: creature like no other. It,
1: as long as you can make me a sandwich. Yeah. So. You know, their pushback to her in some ways was pushback to that woman writ large. But Monica Lewinsky, as many of us know, who followed the story at the time, was uh, involved in a sex scandal with the president of the United States. But somehow the mainstream media narrative came to paint her as a perpetrator and not a victim.
0: But it seems to me that so much of the mainstream media narrative and so much of the pushback, in fact, came from women. I mean, Barbara Walters and the authors of the rules were two women.
1: It came from everyone
0: maureen dowd i don't know how much you even write about maureen dowd but you could write a treatise on maureen dowd's treatment of monica lewinsky but there is a generational clash there i think
1: Well, yes, absolutely. I think also the mainstream media narrative at the time, whether it was coming from Barbara Walters, Maureen Dowd, Newsweek, Time, all of the major media publications were painting Lewinsky in this way. Reporters interviewed her childhood neighbors who said that she wore lipstick from an early age as if to suggest that she was seeking male attention from the time she was a child. This portrayal of her traded in sexist and misogynistic tropes. And it wasn't about sort of women doing them versus men doing them the whole culture was doing them because we didn't know any better.
0: Yes, but I guess my question is, I'm going to stipulate that there was a lot of sexism, but when real feminists, I mean, Maureen Dowd and Barbara Walters assessed Monica Lewinsky and maybe didn't think too hard about it, and Barbara Walters asked, where did you get the nerve? Monica, you have been described as a a bimbo, a stalker, a seductress. Describe yourself. And Maureen Dowd also, you know, informed by her Catholicism and her opinions of right and wrong comes down so hard on her. I think, again, without thinking, what is what does that say?
1: It says that in the 1990s, there was a broad campaign of sexism and misogyny in the mainstream media and in society at large. And so anyone who was a participant in either of those places was part of creating a persona for Monica Lewinsky that she was somehow to blame for this scandal. Also, Bill Clinton had already been elected and there had been lots of charges of infidelity and affairs and, um, you know, disgusting behavior levied at him. So I think what also happened was there was this sense that his as one journalist who covered the story at the time told me he had a horn dog persona yeah. that had been decided already. America had agreed to elect someone with a horn dog persona, and so in that way he was not culpable. So the only person who could then be culpable was the victim.
0: Yeah, you know his advisor said you drag hundred dollars through a trailer park and you, you'll see who comes out. And they also talked about bimbo eruptions. But a lot of the discussion was, you know, where the discussion went was not to really analyze how sexist we were being as a culture, but how kind of sexually repressed we were being. And we looked at the French and we said, well, there, our president has a mistress. And isn't that something that we should emulate? Why are we so hung up on issues of sex and marriage. I think that's what progressive people, feminists, trying to do the right thing, that's where they wanted to take it, rather than saying, why are we giving Monica such a hard time?
1: Mm. Well, abstinence-only sex education became really the kind of sex education many children were getting in the 1990s, myself included, growing up in Macon, Georgia. So that was, you know, we were not learning about authentic sexuality. We were not learning uh, about pleasure. We were learning about body parts and sort of... uh, elevating male sexuality and diminishing female sexuality, calling it wrong, calling it bad, um, all of the things that Monica Lewinsky in many ways came to represent, these sort of negative portrayals of female sexuality, which in many ways are rooted in fear. Women uh, involved in any kinds of stories, particularly crime stories, when they should have been victims, they were often villains. Lorena Bobbitt, uh, Anita Hill, Monica Lewinsky, Amy Fisher, Tanya Harding, the list goes on.
0: You're right. Lorena Bobbitt was, I mean, a a horrific victim. She was repeatedly victimized, repeatedly raped by her psychopathic husband.
1: Who threatened to deport her.
0: Yeah. She's Guatemalan. That's another major aspect. Since the book came out, I think I, Tanya was... You wrote about it in the book, but had you seen it by the time the book came out? No. Okay, so what are your reflections? Uh, What are your opinions of that? Because it does...
1: The film or the story?
0: No, the film. The film is feminist, and it shows that she was abused, and I think it really, for the first time and fullest time, allows her her say.
1: The film is brilliant. Yeah. Tanya Harding has gotten a reconsideration, thanks in large part to that film. Nancy Kerrigan, on the other hand, deserves a reconsideration yeah. also, yeah. but has not gotten one in the same way. She was absolutely victimized uh, as badly as Tanya Harding or worse during the 1990s. By
0: society or by Tanya Harding? And and Galuli and those those knuckleheads
1: by society and by the news media in particular she you know she won the silver medal in the olympics but was accused of losing gold the washington post ran a headline that said is nancy a bitch that was the headline uh and it was sort of a speculative account of of whether her uh she went to disney world and she um was caught on a hot mic complaining about this being so corny and so so dumb sitting next to goofy and donald duck (laughs) uh and so there was this reconsideration of nancy kerrigan you know perhaps she's not the ice princess that we thought she was or perhaps she is the ice princess emphasis on ice Uh, so her story really hasn't gotten the same treatment
0: um let's talk about courtney love for a second so if i agree with you on Lewinsky, i am not a courtney love fan actually i like her music and her persona is fine but to me Just like uh, Amy Fisher puts a bullet in the head of uh, Mary Jo Buttafuoco. I mean, she punches Kathleen Hanna in the face. She's, she, you have numerous quotes in your book. I didn't have to do extra research. You know, threatening violence against female journalists. You're right, to some extent, criticizing her for being a terrible mother in the same way that we don't criticize Keith Richards for being a terrible father is a double standard. But to what extent do we want to hold... Courtney Love up as anything other than the author of most of the opprobrium that came her way.
1: Courtney Love was reaching for male power and she had a kind of ambition that you could call very male. She put her leg up on the amplifier. She threatened journalists with violence. Yeah. There isn't really. She threatened Tina
0: Brown. She threatened Tabitha Sorin you know, she threatened, she she wasn't a good feminist, I don't think.
1: I'm not arguing that any of these women are good feminists. That's yeah. not my argument. My argument is the way that they were covered in the news media. Uh-huh. And Courtney Love did lots of actions that many male rockers also do, taking, you know, she was allegedly, she took heroin while pregnant. That's why she threatened Lynn Hirschberg, who reported that. Yeah. Um, there are examples, there are countless examples of male rock stars behaving in the same ways that Courtney Love is said to have behaved. But the way that they're treated is different than the way that she's treated and sure. that's what I'm trying to I'm trying to create the distinction between the treatment I got of that male rockers and female rockers right, for the but, same behavior
0: but when you have a child in utero it's different if you take heroin versus if you're the father who takes heroin that's just different
1: that's different but I, it's, again we don't know we don't know the facts of this we don't right. know exactly oh what yeah happened. we don't
0: know if she really did the major you argue you uh, discuss these different cases but if there is a through line that's more about the zeitgeist it's something like perhaps we look back at the 90s with nostalgia but as you look back with a critical lens it was horrifying and surprising just how sexist the decade was so my question is Stipulating that, wasn't it a little less sexist than the horrible 80s? And weren't the 80s a bit less sexist than the horrible 70s? And I'm not saying the arc of history is necessarily bending towards justice, but this is just how progress goes. There's, there's sexism imbued in the founding of America, and probably we've been getting less sexist. We've been marching along to a path of more enlightenment ever since. And so you could take any decade and make the case about the decade that it was more sexist than now, but less sexist than its predecessor.
1: What was unique about the 90s was the onset of the 24-hour news cycle after the Persian Gulf War. So once cameras returned from there, there was this infrastructure for relentless constant news coverage and storytelling uh, all the time. And so despite the fact that most people think that the 1990s was the era of the Internet, it was actually television was the biggest media stage of all. And we were all sort of for the first time watching the same stories unfold uh, at the same time, and for days, weeks, months, and years. And in many ways women became this relentless content. Women became the characters in these stories who were elevated and sort of fitted into bitch tropes and that's how we that's how we come to sort of spend years thinking about and discussing Monica Lewinsky, Anita Hill, many of the women we've already talked about. It's because of the 24-hour news cycle. And things are already different today. We're in the middle of a different kind of media revolution. Social media has created a different landscape for storytelling. Stories last 20 minutes today. So So it's a very different kind of coverage, and I think the 24-hour news cycle in the 90s caused the treatment, the bitchification that I write about in the book.
0: Was the 90s less sexist than the 80s or more sexist than the 80s?
1: I wrote a book about the 90s, so I, I would say more, but I didn't I didn't write a book about You the think 80s. the 90s
0: were more sexist than the 80s?
1: I think for the first time you had the 24-hour news cycle, so everybody was turning on their television and sort of getting these rich stories, internalizing them, watching them all the time. You remember the Bronco chase, Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan, sort of updates and interviews and constant constant coverage and fodder and ways to plug into these stories. And the ways that they were told were so inherently sexist. So we were able to just feed off of them in a different way. The 80s didn't have the same kind of media infrastructure for storytelling.
0: But that's pop culture. I mean, empirical data, as you cited, that the average age for marriage trended up from 20 to 22 to 24 during the 90s. So it's not necessarily true that the older you are at the age of marriage, less less as a society is, but it seems to be correlative. And if you look at access to reproduction, it seems to have been a lot better in the 90s than the 80s. And if you look at, I don't know, I think that we could probably take a bunch of, you know, empirically determined points of data and show that every decade had been a little less sexist or a little better for women than the last.
1: Feminism absolutely made strides in the 1990s. There are many examples of that, like the median age of marriage rising. The Riot Grrrl movement is another sort of example of um, a movement that created the idea of female anger and really put it into the popular culture in a big way, politically and musically. I like to talk about them. but. Even though there were sort of empirical gains in the 90s, pop culture is incredibly important for shaping our perceptions and what we believe is possible for us as human beings, but particularly as women, because there are so few women in power. You know, name your sector, sports, politics, entertainment. It's still the case that men by and large run these fields. So it's difficult for women to even envision themselves in these places. And so in the ways that the 90s popular culture created sexist tropes for women, and it did a tremendous disservice for young women coming of age that decade and really for the millennial generation who internalized these narratives and really grew up thinking that what they could be was limited.
0: All right. Allison Yarrow is the author of 90s Bitch, Media Culture and the Failed Promise of Gender Equality. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And now the spiel. So let's talk about it. Were the 80s worse or better than the 90s for women, womankind in the U.S.? Okay, the first statistic that people usually grab for is the pay gap or the gender gap. The stat that says that women only still earn 82 cents for every dollar a man earns. And that 82 cents statistic, that is the most current one. There are various reasons why this happens. But I would think that some small reason is still sexism. So What was the state of things in decades past? So in 1978, that gap was 35%. That was the gap. So women were earning only 65% of what a man earned. By 1988, it was up to 74%. And what happened is in the decade of the 80s, that gap shrank or women's earnings grew pretty significantly, 10%. But by the end of the 90s, it was at 78.2%. So women were earning 78 cents on the dollar. So what that means is that things got better in the 90s. Yes, better less quickly than they were getting in the 80s, but better. Let's go to contraception. The proportion of U.S. women using a contraceptive method rose from 56% in 1982 to 60% in 1988 to 64% in 1995. And it did keep growing. The type of contraception changed. HIV AIDS caused some of that change. But in general, women were using and it was more readily available to get usable contraception. And I've got to think that greater contraception equals greater liberation of women certainly equals more choices. And in this regard, the 90s were better than the 80s education. Let's look at not just college degrees, but the gap between women getting degrees and men getting degrees. So in the start of the decade of the 80s, in 1980, uh, men were getting college degrees at 7% higher a clip than women. So let's go to the end of the 80s. This really hadn't changed. 24% of men at the end of the 80s had college degrees, 18% of women. But it had changed by the 90s. By the end of the 90s, 23% of women had college degrees, 27% of men did. So we went from a 6 or 7% gap to a 4% gap in a decade. The 90s were better for women. Special note, women have now outstripped men in college education. Let us talk about crime, crime against women, violence against women. Here is the quintessentially imperfect messenger on women's issues in 1995.
1: For too long, domestic violence has been swept under the rug, treated as a private family matter that was nobody's business but those involved.
0: Fortunately, that's changing. Bill Clinton was right, and it changed largely because of legislation that he championed, the Violence Against Women Act, sponsored by Joe Biden in the Senate and Louise Slaughter in the House. This bill passed over the objections of Republicans who were the minority in 1994, and it had a big impact. The 1990s were safer for women, it focused on safe streets for women, safe homes for women equal justice for women in courts, stalker and domestic violence reduction that just began to become a thing in the 1990s, protection for battered immigrant women and children, and provisions for strengthening existing laws. The rates of domestic violence went down from the 80s to the 90s. So from 93 to 97, we saw domestic violence falling uh, 9.8 per thousand to 7.5 per thousand. Violence against women by intimate partners fell by 21% during the 90s. A lot of this depends on what the overall crime rate was, but crimes against women went down significantly in the 90s, and it was because of the Violence Against Women Act. Wait, was it because of it? Am I sure that it was a causal relationship between violence coming down and the act passing? I looked this up, and several studies indicate, yeah, the act really helped. This one study I read suggested that the Violence Against Women Act significantly strengthened victims' involvement with criminal justice, such as prosecutors and court officers. In addition, the study suggested that domestic violence has been declining and victims' responses to domestic violence has increasingly involved the criminal justice system. And it concludes that the Violence Against Women Act has had some success. And what was really going on was there was an awakening or a dawning on people in the 80s. The state of Minnesota had its own Violence Against Women Act in the 80s, and it gained steam. And by the 90s, it went national. But what it adds up to is that things were not better, but less terrible for women having violence perpetrated against them in the decade of the 90s as compared to the 80s. Another statistic, and this just isn't more men going to jail or less women being abused, just looking at the services that were available. In 1986, there were 336 legal service programs serving victims of domestic violence. By 94, that was up to 1,190. By the end of the decade, it was up to 1,441 programs. So it almost quintupled from the 80s to the end of the 90s. Let's look at representation in government. In the beginning of the 80s, in the House of Representatives, 17 women. By the end of the 80s, there were 26 women. But by the end of the 90s, there were 67 women in the House of Representatives. Now it's 104, so that's better. But I'd just like to point out that the number more than doubled in the 90s, which was much, much better than the 80s. and It's actually much better than since. In 1980, there was one female senator. Now, for most of the decade in the Senate, there were two female senators. Nancy Kessenbaum was always one of them. And then Barbara Mulkowski by the end of the decade and Paula Hawkins in the beginning. And in 1999, there were nine female senators. Nine female senators. It's really easy to do the math on the Senate, right? That's only 9% of the Senate population for what should be 51%. But again, a lot better in the 90s than the 80s. So what I'm doing is I am taking a grab bag of data. I am taking a grab bag of statistics, but we use statistics to reflect society. What Alison Yarrow did was to take a grab bag of well-known people and use their treatment and the things said about them to show that the 90s did not live up to our ideals of today. Our ideals are still probably a lot less than ideal. And both ways of looking at sexism or what the decade meant for women are valid. And there's usefulness to it. But I want to leave us all with one last survey. YouGov asked people a couple years ago, do you personally hope that the United States elects a woman president in your lifetime? 66% of respondents said yes, and 34% said no. By the way, 29% of women said no. And it was 60-40 for men. 40% of men don't want a woman president. Just anyone. Well, what if she cuts your taxes Buy a million dollars and put your face on a stamp. Doesn't matter. Don't want a woman. Now, that's a one-off poll, and I think it was particularly inflected by Hillary Clinton. Gallup has been asking that question. Would you vote for a woman president? Would you vote for a woman president? They've been asking it since 1937. And uh, only a third of the people said yes back then. But in 1987, it was up to 82% said, I would vote for a woman president. That was the highest point of Gallup asking that question. They didn't ask it every year. 1987 was the last year they asked it in the 80s. By 1999, that number was up to 92. 92% of Americans said they would vote for a woman president. In 2016, 92% did not vote for a woman president. But you know, it was a hypothetical. And the number increased from the 80s to the 90s. I do not think when it comes to social justice, knowing how far we've come is the most important thing. I think it's a self-assessment of is this fair or is this not fair? Is this the way it ought to be? And that gives us a hunger for wanting true equal rights. And that also gives us a consciousness to spot wrongs we used to think were acceptable. We need to be driven by passion and outrage. But I do think that somewhere back there, it's better to accurately recognize the strides we made. Not to rest on our laurels, but to maybe learn from the tactics of what was successful. But also to know that progress can be made. And also to know that progress isn't always reflected in the difference between Joan Collins and Shannon Dougherty. Or the trend lines between Jane Pauley and Katie Couric. But overall, taken from statistics reflecting millions of American women. And when you do that, I believe things got better in the two decades we're talking about. And things have gotten better since. So we have hope and we have progress. But we want more. And today, you can wear lipstick if you're 12 years old. But still, try not to shoot your married lover's wife in the head. If you can help it. It's all a balancing act. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bianame and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. They baked in a couple of secret references that only an enhanced audio engineer can really make come to life. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He wonders if there is a frequency that can only be heard by Rudy Giuliani and koalas. And if so, why are we denying that demographic its own podcast? The Gist. I have an admission. Ever since he moved to 9 p.m., I set the DVR, and so Michelle thinks that we're watching the new Will and Grace or Real Housewives, but in the background, I am secretly recording Chris Cuomo. So me and Michael Cohen now have that in common, in addition to frequently untucked shirts. One day I might be a fixer. Peru de Peru do, and thanks for listening.